Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Like I said earlier, this movie is based on May of 1940. Uh, this movie picks up, it actually picks up in World War II while the Nazi military is just plowing through all of Europe. And it was knocking on West Europe's door, not East Europe, but West Europe's. Italy had already decided to fold and then negotiated with Hitler. Parliament here demanded the Prime Minister Neville uh, Chamberlain to step down because he was so weak with the Nazi opposition. And uh, so England was without a prime minister in the midst of this crisis. And the only person that both sides could agree on was this man named Winston Churchill. And he was notorious for being a really flawed person. He was a bulldog. He was cantankerous. Everyone knew that he was an avid drinker. And he found himself at the helm in this position during England's darkest hour. And this movie really is about the first three weeks of him being in office. Uh, so it's not about a long period of time, but it's about what is this man going to do in this dire moment? And the main, the main conflict is over this one question. Do you negotiate with Hitler or not? That was the main question of that time. And I didn't realize before watching this movie how incredibly close England was to coming up with a treaty with Hitler. On this side of history, we look at that and go, there's no way. But they were so close to having a treaty with the Nazi military. And the reason why is because in World War I, they lost so many lives, and they are just barely getting past that when this happened. And so they were already crippled. And when you were looking at what Germany was doing through all of Europe, There's no way to think that anyone was going to stop them from taking it all. All of Europe was going to be Germany's. And so if you knew that you could have peace with your enemy, why wouldn't you take it? Well, the the main question is, how does one define peace? That, for me, was one of the main messages of this movie. Because if you have a certain idea of peace, it will lead you to a very distinct place. So in our culture, how do we define peace? Here in Austin, how do, we fi- how do we define peace? For me, when I were to think about our community and our culture, we would probably most often define peace as an absence of conflict. But peace happens when there's just not a conflict, when there's not a struggle. But the Bible seems to give a different definition of peace. There's nothing wrong with the way that other people understand it, but it's just not the biblical notion of peace. The word for peace in the Hebrew language is shalom. Why don't you say it, shalom? It's a fundamental component of understanding the Jewish faith. It's also a fundamental aspect of understanding the Christian faith, I believe, because peace or shalom is not just merely the absence of conflict. It's much, much deeper than that. It goes further than that. Shalom describes when things are made complete. When things are whole or made whole again, there's shalom. When there's like fullness of experience. When we live in the way in which we are created to live, that is shalom. 
One of the things in the, in the gospel narratives, oftentimes when Jesus would heal someone, uh, our language that we read it is he would, he would heal them, but if you were to look at the actual Greek, the, another probably better translation is that he, Jesus made them whole again. He made the whole person whole again. That, my friends, is shalom. Peace is living and experiencing the life that God created us to experience. So do you ever have moments in your life where it just kind of slows down and you're just overwhelmed by gratitude? could even be for like the small things in life. And for whatever reason, time slows down and you experience gratitude well up within you. That, my friends, is shalom. Have you ever had this conflict in this relationship and it doesn't seem like there's any way to get out of it, but for whatever reason, confession and forgiveness pops its head up and a relationship is restored? That, my friends, is shalom. Not merely because there's not conflict anymore, but because there's unity. There's oneness that came out of the rubble of pain. Have you ever served someone? Have you cared for someone? Have you ever been a part of a community that have gone out into this world to serve and care for other people? And even though you're exhausted, you come back uh, bloodshot-eyed, you have dirty nails, you're exhausted, but there's something within you that says, oh, that is good. That's the experience of shalom, the life that you were created to live. And Jesus came to give us shalom, deep peace, And the surprise is, sometimes you can have deep peace in the midst of conflict. In the midst of affliction, you can still have deep peace. Jesus said this in John 14, 27. Peace I leave you, I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What Jesus seems to be saying here is that we should expect a different kind of peace than what this world will probably offer us. And how we define and see peace will take us in two different directions. Is it Jesus' type of peace or the peace that we seem to be offered in this life? You see, for Churchill's critics, they knew that they could have peace with Hitler, that it was there. Italy was ready to negotiate a peace agreement between, it, uh, between uh, Hitler and between Churchill. And it was right there. They could coexist, but for Churchill, the question is, is that peace? Would that be peace? That's actually the main point in this movie, and it's perfectly summed up in this one clip. Prime Minister, the question of peace talks. Uh, we must hold on here. Signal only that we intend to fight it out until the end. Uh, peace offer Surround myself with old rivals. 
friendship for Calvinists. It's, it's, it's just not for me. It's futile. But it involves us in a deadly danger. The deadly danger here is this romantic fantasy of fighting to the end. What is the end? If not the destruction of all things. There's nothing heroic in going down fighting if it can be avoided. Nothing even remotely patriotic in death or glory if the odds are firmly on the former. Nothing inglorious in trying to shorten a war that we are clearly losing. Losing! Europe is still! Europe is lost! And before our forces are wiped out completely, now is the time to negotiate in order to obtain the best conditions possible. Hitler will not insist on outrageous terms. He will have his own weaknesses. He will be reasonable. When will the lesson be learned? When will the lesson be learned? How many more dictators must be well wound, appeased, good God, given in its tendencies, before we learn? You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth! Isn't that a great scene? Hence the Oscar, right? He won the Oscar. I love that scene because right there, like, it's just a perfect example of this struggle of two different types of peace. It's an incredible thing that uh, the slippery slope into two deadly dangers that they were talking about. One deadly danger was losing this battle, losing lives, and England being destroyed. But for Churchill, the other deadly danger is learning to have peace with the enemy. Learning to live in such a way that you were never intended to live. That is a slippery slope that ends with deadly danger. The Ger a German 15th century theologian, Tom Thomas Kempis, once said, All men desire peace, but very few desire those things that make for peace. The willingness, the willingness to fight. The willingness to walk with all faithfulness, generosity, that leads to peace that many of us might grow weary from, to live in shalom. Churchill, he knew his battle, and I think for us, I think we're at a disadvantage because of that. Many of us are living our days without any notion of us living in the midst of conflict, of us having sort of struggle in our life. This great line from another movie called The Usual Suspects uh, perfectly sums it up by saying this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is to convince the world he didn't exist. Why is this a great trick? Because if we didn't realize that we we're in a struggle, would we fight? If we didn't realize that we already lost our sense of peace, would we seek to regain it? But without realizing that we are in the midst of conflict, without realizing and living with this notion of having a struggle, we just walk through life without that sense of awareness. So what is our conflict? It's summed up perfectly in Jesus' words in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus' mission was to give people full life, 
life abundantly, life that solves the question for every longing that you've ever had, a type of full life that leads you to shalom, where it's this experience of deep peace. And it's more than just having, not having conflict. It's, it's, it's about experiencing life to the fullest. But there is an enemy. This enemy is pulling us away from this deep life. St. Augustine famously said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What Jesus seems to be saying here in John 10.10 is whether you know Jesus or not, you were created to know him. Not just know about Jesus, but you were created to experience Jesus. And life doesn't work without him. That's the exclusive kind of claim that it seems that our gospel message is saying is that life doesn't work without Jesus. But this is the good news, is that Jesus went to great lengths that you could experience life to the full. But there's an enemy. The enemy's goal is very simple. It is to still kill and destroy, to hold people back from shalom, to destroy the peace that we were created for. And we see this even from the very, very beginning. Even in the beginning of the garden, here we see this struggle. Genesis 1.26, the creation story that we find there, it shows how humanity began, and it began like this. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. That we were created in the image of God. So, of course, life doesn't make sense without him. Why? Because we were meant to be living with the one whose image we bear. That this is shalom, is that found with God. And I love this. First words are really important, and it's really important for us to hear the first words that God ever said over humanity. This is in verse 31 of that same chapter. God saw all that he made on this last day after he made humanity, and he said it is very good. This crescendo of goodness ended with the creation of humanity, and God said, now that is good. That image that is in this world that bears my image. Now that is good. And why this is good news is if you were born in the image of God, your value is not tied to your status, not tied to your family, your gender, your age, the color of your skin. It's not tied to your bank account, your income. Your value is tied to your creator who looks at you and says, You are good. That's shalom. But the conflict began early. There was an enemy of God's intent, a serpent, who opposed God. And the enemy's goal from the very beginning was to kill, steal, and destroy. So notice the very first words the serpent said over humanity. This is in chapter 3 of Genesis in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, I love how telling this is, his strategy in disrupting the shalom of God was to say not something but say a question. All he said was, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent's strategy to steal this moment in destroying the shalom was to provoke a simple question. Can you really, can you really trust God? 
Did he really say that? Do you really believe what you heard him say? Not only about this tree, but maybe even about you? Did he really say that? And that simple question led to doubt. Doubt led to distrust. Distrust led to rebellion. And that is why we live in the tragedy that we find in this world, this world that longs for shalom. It was disrupted. It was stolen. It was destroyed. And this is important. Even though that shalom was lost, this is the good news about God, is God hates losing things. God hates losing things, and so this grand rescue mission from the heart of God began where things were restored, and that includes a deep sense of peace. God did not like seeing the image of God in this world being destroyed, so he began this great rescue mission to restore full shalom, to restore that image of God in this world. For example, I just want to take an interesting conversation that Jesus had about this image and the purpose in this world. Just like Churchill had people who were in opposition to him, so did Jesus. Jesus had opposition, religious leaders, Pharisees who were coming against him. And in Matthew 22, 16, it says this. Teacher, they said to Jesus, we know that you are a man of great integrity. Just kind of building him up, right? But then they say this. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, I know that seems random, but just stick with me. Uh, Jesus, he, in this question, they were trying to trap him. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, he does something really interesting with this idea of paying taxes or not. Uh, Jesus said, okay, to answer this question, why don't you go get me a coin? And so they go and they bring him a, a coin and he asks this question to him, holding this coin up. Whose image is this? On this coin here, whose image is this? And they said, Caesar. Okay. Well, how about you give back to Caesar what is Caesar's? In other words, because this coin bears the image of Caesar, it belongs to him. So how about you give back to Caesar what belongs to him? But Jesus didn't stop there. He took us to a deeper truth. And he said, and give to God what belongs to God, what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So what's so amazing about this little kid illustration? Like It almost sounds like a kid's sermon for me. What's so amazing about this? What he's saying is since this coin bears Caesar's image, it belongs to him. But there's something else that belongs to God. And what bears God's image in this world? It's you. It's me. It's that child crying back there. And Scott, who's shaking it. Not too much. Don't shake too much. What this seems to be saying to me as of lately is it's something so elementary, guys, it could almost just like fly right past our hearts and our souls and our minds. So I just put on fresh ears for a second here, uh, just to try to soak in this truth. You belong to God. You belong to God. Why? You bear God's image. And it's not only you, 
but it's all of humanity. Your neighbors, the refugee, that person flying a sign on the corner, your mother-in-law, the prisoner, and yes, your enemy. They belong to God. And Jesus' rescue mission is to get back what he lost, and that is to restore that image of God in this world through people who have forgotten, they have lost that image, they need to be restored, to give to God what belongs to God. I listened to a conversation this past, uh, this past couple weeks ago uh, with an African-American social rights activist and a pastor in our denomination, the Covenant Church, Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, she talked about this passage, and it just provoked such thought in me. And this is what she said. You can always tell whose kingdom you're in by noticing what image flourishes. You can always tell whose kingdom you're in by noticing what image is flourishing, which image is being promoted, is out there for everyone to see. And wherever you see that image crushed, destroyed, taken away, you know there's a battle at work. You can see this if you're a student of history. Anytime there's like a dictator in some sort of country, you know that they love seeing their image all over that country. And as soon as there's an upheaval, as soon as there's a new dictator or new government, guess one of the first things that happens is what? Statues come down. Flags are burned. Posters are torn down. Why? That image no longer has power in this place anymore. A new power is there. So this, for me, is, uh, provokes a really, really important question. Where is the image of God being destroyed in our world today? Where is that battle? Where is the image of God being harmed in Austin in 2018? Where is the image of God being stolen in my home, in my life, Where is that image suffering? Because that, my friends, is where the battle is. And I see in this, I see this all over our world. I see this battle to destroy the image of God. I see it through shame. The voice of shame that harms and destroys the image of God and other people. The same questioning voice that says, "Can can you really believe that God would believe that you're worth it? And all of a sudden, shame takes root and that image is destroyed. I see, the, I see the destruction of the image of God through systems of racism and oppression. I see it in the way too common pain of sexual abuse in our community and our culture through trafficking. I th- see the tearing down of God's image in this world by not trusting or loving or caring for people on the other side of that aisle, whatever that aisle is for you, politically, socially, ethnically, theologically. I see the destruction of the image of God by how indifferent we can be towards other people's pains when they don't act like us, look like us, talk like us, come from our tribe. If it doesn't affect me. Any oppression and injustice on the image of God is an attack on King Jesus himself. And there's no way that there could be Christ-like peace in this world while the image of Jesus is being damaged. 
In Jesus, there's no possibility of a treaty or a peace agreement while the image of God is being destroyed in this world. Why? Because it's not shalom. In Jesus' mind, that's not an idea of peace. And just like Churchill's peers are trying to argue for a treaty, we might be turned, uh, tempted to turn our attention away from the exposed and the vulnerable and the exploited in our community. But we cannot buy into that idea of peace either. So what's Jesus' plan for restoring shalom? Well, one day, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom will come back, and he will restore all things. And he will also come back as a judge, which we don't think of oftentimes with Jesus. But until that day, Jesus' plan is to send people like me and you into this world to fight for the restoration of God's image in this world, to proclaim the reign of King Jesus here and now, to proclaim the reign of of King Jesus in my life, in my home, in my marriage, in my community, in our church, in our city, in our neighborhoods, that Jesus has power today. A few weeks ago, some of us went out to Community First, where we're going to have that movie night. And while I was out there, I, was, I brought Dylan, and we were in this one group of people, and we were pulling up weeds and, and watering things. And I loved it, though. One of my favorite things about the experience was the person who was leading our group and was leading each of these groups was a resident, someone who's chronically homeless. And now they're teaching us how to care and tend for the gardens out there and work alongside of them. Our guy was named Charlie. And... Uh, Getting to know Charlie and hearing his story, just a small snippet of his story, and hearing how he was on the streets and he lost everything, but here he is in this community where he's flourishing now. I was struck with the fact that Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns in this place. Jesus reigns in Charlie's life, and this image of God has been restored from being out in the woods, living in isolation, to here in a community, that this is how Jesus' image is flourishing. I love meeting with a young man who's reading Scripture for the first time and understanding the promises of God for the first time. And when I'm being with him, I think to myself, this is the kingdom of Jesus breaking in to this person's identity. And the image of God is being restored because they're getting to know their maker, their creator, their, their redeemer, their savior. This is the image of God. We can see the image of God flourishing in our community. Why? Because people are sent to restore that image wherever we go. I love seeing people who are going through deep pain and through the companionship of people in this room, because some people in this room have decided to walk with their pain with them. There's restoration and there's healing. That right there is the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is breaking forth in someone's life. But something was interesting about this movie. In this movie, Churchill, when he got close to having a negotiation with Hitler, there's a nuance in this movie. When I saw that, I was like, why in the world are they doing this? He, he left his lighter. He couldn't find his lighter. And any nuance like that in the film or even in Scripture, you kind of wonder, why is that there? And so he couldn't find his lighter, and he always wants to smoke a cigar. So it just kept on happening over and over and over again. And it was interesting, the climax of this movie, he... When he lost his spark, he lost his light. He found himself going into the subway. He, he went rogue from his driver, and he went to the subway uh, to, get, to get among the people, the image of England, the people. 
And as he stopped into a subway on the way to work, of course, he was filled, it was filled with wide-eyed English people who were looking at their prime minister there with them in the sub. And uh, to break the tension, he asked, does anyone have a light? And this dusty-looking man pulled out his matchbook and lit Churchill's cigar. And then Churchill posed the question that all the politicians have been wrestling with. So he said to them, should we negotiate or not? What do you say? And the people were puzzled. Should we what? I'm sorry, what did you say? Of course we can't negotiate with Hitler. Of course we're going to have to fight. Of course we're going to have to do this all the way to the end. And there's something in this climax of this that changed within Churchill. It changed him from the inside out to see the resolve among the people that were there. And, and he went from there to step into where all the other politicians were, knowing that he must fight. Knowing that he must fight till the end. And this was the turning point in this movie. He walked away emboldened because he was face to face with the image of England. And he knew that it would not be okay to settle with a treaty. And so he steps in the scene with this kind of resolve. The war cabinet is drafting papers that lay out in willingness to enter into peace talks with Herr Hitler. Why, Hitler? Exactly, Mussolini. I have thought very carefully in these last days whether it was part of my duty to consider entering into negotiations with. with that man. But then I hear, I spoke with them. All of those. Mrs. Jessie did something. Mrs. Abigail Walker, Marcus Peters, and Morris Baker, Alice Simpson and Miss Margaret Gerard. Very few true citizens of this kingdom, and I argued strongly that it was fine to think if we tried to make peace now, we should get better terms than if we fought it out. The terms, Mr. Baker felt, would demand. In the name of disarmament, our naval base is in Mark Johnson. I think he's right. For Jesse Sutton, speaking for many, uh, believes we would then become a, a strange state. There, there were British government which would be in this pocket. A uh, government set up under, under Mosley or some such person. And I joined with them in asking a Sight of the, the, the swastika 
Notice where he wrote the names of the people? On the matchbook. For him, he took those people in that place with him to remind him of the resolve that he had to have to keep fighting, to keep going. And did you notice what the greatest response of, like, we can't let that happen in that video, is when this idea of the swastika flying over Buckingham Palace, would we be okay with that? That image flying where it shouldn't fly? over this people, over this nation. Friends, there's something more important. There's something actually more at stake for Jesus' kingdom than that. Do we see that? Would we tolerate it when the image of God is being destroyed all around us? How much does our compassion get stirred when we see that? Here in our own community, I like to imagine Jesus with a matchbook where he gets to see the people who are willing to fight it out. The people who are willing to say, it's not going to be on my watch. The people who are willing to seek justice and reconciliation. And I hope my name is on that book. I hope our church's name is on that book of people who are seeking to restore the image of God in this world. So, Levine, I just want to ask you Churchill's words. I want to ask you a question. I've come to you tonight to learn your mind this hour. Are you going to settle for a weak idea of peace? Or will you fight for the restoration and the redemption for all of God's people until Jesus comes and restores all things? Let's pray together.